Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. It is great to have you here. I'm Bernard Hickey, co-host of The Hoon on the Kaka with Peter Bale. Peter, great to see you. Bernard, it's lovely to see you too. And I can see that you've been for a swim, which always makes me feel good because I know how it makes you feel relaxed and able to deal with your rather mad working life. I've been for a swim every day this week except for today, which I buggered up. So I was out running around like a mad person. So I didn't get to go in at high tide and do my um, I have a new regime, which is I do three three rounds between a couple of boys. And I like to think that the boys are 100 metres apart, but I looked at them today and I suspect they're only 50. <laughs> so like most things that men can do, I've been deluding myself. Delusions are the thing that keep us going, I think. And um, I would suggest straight after the the hoon jumping out, not quite uh, from your balcony, but um, yeah. If I did it from my deck or or from the from the you you've been down there from the from the jetty, I would um, probably crack my noggin on some uh, oysters, which would be most unpleasant. But at high tide, it's tickety boo. Yeah. No, I've one had one swim today, and straight after the hoon, I'm going to go and have another one because it feels like the longest, hottest, best summer of all time, like when you were a 10 year old kid. I know, I know. And we bitch and complain about the New Zealand summer, and it's like we feel as though we've actually had one now or having one. It's been quite a difficult year if you think about what it was like this time last year. And we did have a shitty, shitty couple of months with, apart from the cyclones, just rain and everything. And so this, you know, I'm. Things are getting a bit dry, Bernard. But uh, you know, down on the yeah. down with the hoggets, the you know the hoggets are starting to get a bit dry. But uh, you know, my Pinot Noir is coming on. Good, yeah. No, I can I can feel the grapes uh, and 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 almost smell the grapes ripening around here. Well, actually, funny you should say that because I have got a very good crop of tomatoes this year. Oh, good. What are you going to do with them? Eat them, Bernard. I'm going to eat them because last year all the they were eaten by various bloody parasites. But uh, no, I've been making, uh, oh, I've got purple basil and green basil. And so Ooh. I've been making, you know, trickler, trickler salads with uh, tomatoes mm. and um, mozzarella. Yeah. And I mean, as you do in Hern Bay, you know, we just, we live like Italians here. Yeah, we yeah. all ride Vespers and, you know. Yes, but you'll be able to ride your Vespers without too many speed bumps because um, that's been one of the sort of themes of the last week or two is oh, Simeon Brown. Jesus. Announcing all sorts yes. of things, and Wayne Brown. It's Brown versus Brown, mm. and uh, Simeon Brown has been uh, out there saying uh, no more Auckland regional fuel tax, and the money from that you can't spend on cycleways and busways and speed bumps. Particularly I- cycleways, though, it's so weird. Like, and mm. I read this piece by that guy uh, Bernard Orsman, and despite mm. him being called Bernard, Bernard, you know, we, call him. yeah, yeah, Bernard. yeah, yeah. I mean, what a prick to start with. <laughs> You know, he, he essentially made his story about, and of course, it was one of those classic ones where the Herald actually did a correction, yes, and said our our headline gave the misleading impression that the pedestrian crossings were costing five hundred thousand dollars, which of course they weren't. But the point is, Bernard led. I don't actually know Bernard, mm-hmm. so I, he, I don't know. I'm sure he's a charming fellow, although he may not be as nice as Todd Nile from Stuff used to be. Uh, I mean, probably still is, but Stuff he's retired now. But leading on 
cycle ways and things are going to be banned because it's just it's there's a there's some buzzwords going on at the moment bernard and i think that there's some really shitty stuff in new zealand journalism right now and we need to fix it yeah yeah no we this is a problem it's unfortunately the whole business of you know getting people onto bikes and buses and uh walkways which is going to help save our health and the planet and is frankly a lot more fun that is being disrupted and and co-opted well also just give pe- just we know give people give people options and they'll mm. use them you know yeah. let me address this address this from a journalism point of view Bernard, because i've seen this several times in new zealand certainly since i've been back and you know for many years there's little burrs that get under under the national saddle and the media plays to them and one of them is the five hundred thousand dollar pedestrian crossing and Wayne is guilty of this, but the media is also guilty of feeding this. And I, you know, I, I've seen those, uh, what are they called? Felton, Felton Hogan that does all the, uh, what used to be done by the Ministry of Works. And some of these things are very substantial, particularly if they're done on main thoroughfares, which I actually am much more on the Simeon thing about not putting them into main thoroughfares. But you have to do big jobs on those things because they're, you know, they have huge impact constant impact. They're like a little earthquake every time something goes over them. And I went today on my scooter down Miola Road, which is the other big controversial thing, which was what Mm. caused that $500,000 thing. It's been made very narrow. It's very beautiful. And of course, there was a, it was a site when I was growing up, it was a rubbish tip. And so Uh it's had, it's been delayed by a huge amount of water works underneath it. And it was flooded mad during Gabriel. But mm. when that is done, Bernard Orsman is going to come down and bollock it, I'm sure, or possibly not even turn up to bollock it. He'll probably yeah. bollock it from the Herald offices because it is, it's actually a really creative, it's a creative mm. thing. It's got mm. great cycles, it's going to have great cycleways, um, two lanes. We're not going to whack the wing mirrors off every bloody Range Rover as we drive down. And it's going to increase the value of the properties around there. So if Bernard Orsman oh, well, is good. a property owner in Point Chev, uh, Grey Lynn, um, I wish him the best. Christ, he'd be, he'd, be, he'd be run out on a rail covered in tar and chicken feathers and run out. <laughs> uh, oh, um, speaking of, of Point Chev, which we should, particularly since Taika Waititi has spent $10 million on his new place at uh, Point Chev, did you know that there is a Nomeo, which is north of Miola Road, and Somio, which is south of Miola Road? Micro... I know, I know. Micro neighborhoods, microclimates. Yeah, it is. It is going to be like Dumbo and Soho in New York, and uh, whatever the other ones are. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's um, it it really is capturing the uh, attention. This uh, cultural war that's being waged by a transport minister, and I must say, I'm I'm starting to warm to Wayne Brown. Wayne, yes, me too. Wayne Brown is jumping up and saying, "Up you, mate." Yeah, well, I quite like that Tim Murphy, Tim Murphy, our old friend from Newsroom, and I say friends with inverted commas around, but you know, he he said excellent trolling by Wayne when Wayne suggested <laughs> that he might have to cancel the bus highway running yeah. through Simeon's electorate. Good on him. Fuck yeah. him. Yeah. No, it's it's really quite um, interesting to see that clash uh, to the point where Simeon also threatened to legislate over the top of Wayne Brown. The last thing this government needs is a war with Auckland. You could yes. argue that the last government lost the election because it not deliberately, but in the end, um, was rejected by Auckland because of those lockdowns in the second half of 2022. Gosh, Bernard, that's a very sage 
I've been discussing this a lot lately because I, you know, you know, I wrote something for the listener this week mm. uh, about the Houthi thing. I don't know whether mm. you know I might mention that to people, but I'm not sure whether people read the listener anymore. I'm sure they do. So they certainly should for that story. Mm. But there's a lack of analysis of of the kind of analysis that you just provided, not just your blathering comment from the ZB hosts, which drive me completely insane, and you know who I'm talking about, but that kind of observation of do be careful of Wayne Brown. You know, he's you know. You want a bollard in the middle of the road or a sleeping policeman? That's going to be Wayne. Drive over him at your peril. You'll lose your grill and your and your aerofoil, Simeon. That's that's right. And um, he, this government's already managed to mobilise and alienate a good fifteen percent of the population in a way that um, no one else has been able to do recently. Which which fifteen percent, Bernard? Uh, the Maori population. With oh yes, those big absolutely. Protests. Um, absolutely. So, so it is. Um, Quite, uh, I think the government's obviously very excited about being in power, and there is a political argument to say if you've got hard things to do, do them early, well before an election. Yeah, get all the nasty stuff out of the way early, and uh, but at some point it's going to come back and hurt your polls. And it's interesting yeah. we've already seen a bit of a poll move against the government. We'll see how long it lasts. But yeah, um, but do you know who's going to do really well out of the polls? Is David. David Seymour. Ah, uh, yes. Did and I that... send you yesterday the absolutely sick-making Valentine's cards that he and the rest of that crew sent out yesterday? Ah, uh, no. They are genius at, at political marketing, it has to be said. Yeah, a card with David's face on it. I hope to see more of you this year. Oh, but don't. Uh, you you got to admire I the whisper. After I'd, after I'd vomited and had to clean up my, my computer, I did I did send it to about 8,000 people. Well, that that is a, a quite a mental image um, to take us to the next section. Mm. Uh, Catherine, lovely to see you. Thank you very much for coming on. Catherine Dyer, our climate correspondent for the Kaka. So, Catherine, we've been talking about the media um, and how it's been uh, covering or not covering transport. And one of the things that struck me this week, the first anniversary of the uh, Cyclone Gabrielle, which a bunch of media have, you know, um, sometimes dutifully, sometimes very enthusiastically noted. TV One, for example, for four nights running has had all of its coverage before the break being um, one year on retrospectives of Gabrielle. It's been completely wall to wall. Now, many good stories, interesting pieces about resilience and people who still not back in their homes. And, you know, it was a big event. This was a massive climate disaster for us. However, none of the coverage that I've seen has what I call the nut graph. Mm. This is the mm -hmm. paragraph of background context that you throw into any story, often third or fourth paragraph, to say, this climate event is something that climate scientists say is likely to happen more often and with more extremeness because of a warming climate. I hope I hope they wouldn't say extremeness, Bernard. That was no, I think I'd sub that, that out. I'd, I'd say intensity. I'd <laughs> intensity. say intensity. Intensity. Yeah. Not to sub you in real time. No, no, no. Intensity. Yeah. Why aren't they doing that, Catherine? What the hell's going on? Yeah, I wish I knew. I mean, it's quite it's quite interesting because last week in the climate wrap, we talked about a a professor who was putting forward a proposition that kind of said it's going to take some big climate catastrophes um, before we start to see some some action or response to climate change that's appropriate. And but meantime, we get these big things happening, and and the one thing we don't see is the kind of response that we might be hopeful about happening afterwards, which is a which is so some real action um, 
you know, whether it's to do with adaptation or mitigation or whatever, uh, some kind of, you know, response that seems in tune with the scale of the event that happened. And I know I saw a report from, I think it was um, Munich Re or one of the big insurance companies that put the Cyclone Gabriel in New Zealand was one, one of the top three most expensive mm. natural disasters in the world last year. You know, they were looking at it per head of population as opposed to overall, mm-hmm. but in terms of per head of population. Well, I can tell you, my ins- my insurance on my where my building has gone up 30%, partly, I suspect, because we're next to a building that had the entire cliff collapse into the sea and where I spend every day, part of every day watching 20-metre deep piles being sunk into the cliff to protect it. It's, you know, and and you go around. I, I, you know, you go around the coast of Auckland, around Caraca Bay or uh, Beach Haven or various places that I don't know the name of anymore. Uh, Glendowie, and just the damage is phenomenal. Devonport, yeah. the cliffs of Devonport are in really in trouble. And the the, the stories this week um, rightly showed some of the shocking damage still evident in mm. you know the East Coast, Northland, Hawkes Bay, but uh, it surprised me that. There hasn't been an attempt to use this anniversary as a time to um, apply context. Mm. Catherine, the framing of these issues is often really interesting. Could you talk about how in New Zealand, the framing around climate in our debates are often set by politicians rather than others? What's going on there? Yeah, so this is something I I did a bit of research myself on for my PhD. There was a piece of research that came out, it was around 2015, so I was quite a few years ago, where they looked at the framing of climate change in New Zealand newspapers. And what they found is that they were also, they weren't just looking at how the issue was framed, but also what what the major source of that information was. And the number one source of information that informed the, the media reports was political actors. So fully a third of their sources were political actors. And I think the next, the second one was academics. So that scientists and so on were about 20%. And so the frames that, the, the perspectives that, um, that were communicated were predominantly coming from politicians and the types of ways that they framed it were in terms of, um, economic competitiveness, um, politics, and social progress was sort of the three main ways that they that they talked about it. So when I did my own research, I kind of thought, well, I'm not going to look at the way the media frames it. I'm going to go straight to the source and look at the way that politicians frame climate change and climate action, because that's what is being reflected in the media here. And I don't know if that's the case for other issues. We typically kind of go media frames inform the way governments respond rather than the other way around. But certainly in the case of climate change at that point in time, most of the way it got talked about in the media and in society was based on the way politicians framed it. I think the one of the reasons for that is that unlike in other bigger media markets, societies where there are more think tanks, more non-interested players who have a voice in a public debate. So the United States and the UK, you have various activist groups, various think tanks, various players, former politicians, diplomats who actually get in there and say stuff because, frankly, they can afford to. Whereas in New Zealand, we don't have that same ecosystem of people who are separate directly from politics and uh, who are able to apply, you know, research and time and effort and, and bring in the communicative stars to, to do it. And one of the reasons I think this is, is because 
just like every other media in the world, there's been a contraction in the number and uh, experience of people covering these issues. And so increasingly, because the parliamentary press gallery is frankly a very efficient and relatively cheap way for the major media groups to cover uh, politics and fill their papers and their bulletins, because frankly, the parliament pays. The parliament pays for all the buildings, a lot of the telecommunications, and in terms of being an efficient way to produce lots of news, the parliamentary press gallery does it. Now, that means that the parliamentary reporters in New Zealand tend to set the agenda, and they are obviously, you know, triggered, if you like, uh, focused, uh, fed by the politicians right in front of their faces who are in parliament. So the parliamentary politics tends to dominate the debates around climate and economics and a whole bunch of other things, simply because there are not those players outside of the parliamentary press gallery able to insert themselves into the debate, frankly, because um, it's just not worth it for the main media companies to do that. And so that's one of the challenges, I think, in New Zealand, where in other places, you know, the main newspapers have their own professional columnists who are paid large amounts of money to have opinions, but they're not necessarily politicians. Um, you know, the David Brookses of the world or the Paul Krugmans of the world. Now, they're independently um, supported. They don't have to worry about, you know, who's going to pay the mortgage this month. And from a, a newspaper point of view or a media point of view, you know, people like um, um, Christian Amanpour, who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Exactly. That's mm. the sort of experienced, independent journalist, but with a, an ability to have an opinion that is informed and can set the agenda. You don't see quite so many of those people uh, here. In the climate area, you mean, or yeah. in New Zealand. Well, you're, you're the person in New Zealand, Bernard. You're the only one I listen to, apart from Patrick smelly sometimes. And I'm very appreciative of the support I get from mm. subscribers, and otherwise I wouldn't and be able to do yeah. it. Yeah, and, and Peter too, that's right. But also you bring academic people onto yes, your shows to talk about exactly. these issues, which is exactly the thing that's kind of missing a, a, a little bit. Not not everywhere, but you know, not as dominant as it could be. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, one of the good things that's happened in the last decade or so in the New Zealand media is the growth of the Science Media Centre, created by Peter Griffin, in tandem actually with Stephen Joyce, which deliberately put some money into making it easy to get hold of academics and to essentially shine a light on their research. And I think it really changed the way that our uh, response to COVID um, developed. And we, we are seeing more of those climate voices in the media, thanks to you know some efforts by actually just two or three people, frankly. Mm. Jamie Morton at New Zealand Herald, Eloise Gibson, who's been at Newsroom and Stuff and is now at RNZ, Olivia Wannan at Stuff. I mean, literally, if those three people were not working in journalism, our climate debate would be remarkably less detailed. And we should perhaps get that chat Tong on again. David from Tong, Green, yes. From David from Greenpeace New Zealand. I mean, I remember we had him on from uh, Egypt during that COP. You know, we should have some of these some of these people there, not just, I mean, I, mean, I know he's an activist, but the activists are right now, you know, in a sense, that the activists are are on the money. And remember, we had that fantastic woman from Canterbury, the academic from Canterbury. Oh, Bronwyn, yeah. yeah. Bronwyn Hayward. Yeah, yes. let's, get her, let's get her in again. She's probably got a PhD too. Catherine. Well, she's also helped, write the, she also helped write and coordinate the IPCC reports, so yes, I was able exactly. to, yeah. to connect to that. She's her. excellent. Yeah. yeah, whereas us, to, us two idiot savants can just disappear into the background and listen to you two, which a lot of our audience would quite like. That's right. Like the guy in The Simpsons who recedes into the into the hedge. We can mm. do that, <laughs> Peter. Yeah. Um, 
uh, Catherine, the next uh, issue we wanted to to look at was um, the uh, big news out of our uh, Supreme Court on uh, a massive uh, climate lawsuit. Could you tell us about that and why it's being watched by the rest of the world? Yeah, so this is the case that's often referred to as Mike Smith v. Fonterra. And the case is against seven of New Zealand's highest polluting corporations. So that includes Fonterra, but also Dairy New Zealand, um, Z Energy, you know, like a bunch of highest polluters, uh, carbon polluters. And they together are responsible for something like 30% of New Zealand's carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Uh, There was a court case against them and it got struck out by the High Court originally, but Mike Smith and his team appealed that court case and, and now it has been the Appeals Court has said, yes, this this case has merit and it ought to be heard. So it's going to get its day in court. Yeah. And, yeah, so there's a couple of main issues that make it interesting from an international perspective. One is the issue of causation. So they're talking about, you know, generally speaking, if you want to prove that somebody has harmed you in court, you have to you have to show how their action has specifically and their specific amount of it has has affected you directly. And the court has said they're open to considering different ways to look at causation mm-hmm. when it comes to climate change. So one way would be to say that they materially contributed to the global problem and therefore um, he would have a case against them. Yeah, um, That's a very different way to, to think about causation in courts. Um, and the other major thing that makes it different is the... Um, the aspects of tikanga Māori that are involved. And so Mike Smith is saying that he is um, kaitiaki. He is, not, he is there not just representing himself, mm-hmm. but he also represents the whenua, the wai, and the moana, so the land, the sea, and, and fresh water. And that those can be treated as specific entities in their own right in a court of law. That's quite new. Um, so that those two things make it very interesting from a from an international perspective. But, okay, so we're just just to slightly say, I mean, this actually fits also with um, poor old Robert who's sitting there quietly, but, you know, because it fits with the rules-based international law thing. Mm. And, this, and I was oddly talking to a senior New Zealand judge about this yesterday for something else. This kind of judgment and the fact that it gets overturned in the, by the appeal court and then gets reheard is exactly the way all the treaty legislation has come through or the jurisprudence around the treaty has come through. And it is something we should be proud of rather than trying to reverse constantly. And I would argue it fits with Robert's contention frequently that we're part of the rules-based order and we use, you know, small... We, we should be, a, we are and should be a global leader in this kind of juris, use of jurisprudence to conduct these kind of cases, and uh, particularly in issues of indigenous um, not Maori, not race, but indigenous people versus mm. versus you know colonialism and so on. It's so interesting, and mm. I, I this is Bernard and I started this before you came on, Catherine, with some criticisms of of the shittiness of various uh, areas of coverage, particularly on sort of weird hot button issues that pop up in New Zealand, like half million dollar bloody pedestrian crossings. But a little bit of serious analysis about that judgment. And explanation about, I mean, there's something going wrong journalistically that we're not, re- and I'm not meaning to do that, oh, the mainstream media never reports, but there are really fascinating things going on in justice and law in New Zealand. I think we've seen this um, come across in academia as well, where Māori are very influential uh, uh, 
you know, internationally around these kind of indigenous frameworks and perspectives mm. and and they and particularly around environmental issues that is something that you know they that there is the potential for for New Zealand to have a lot of impact internationally through yes. that um, and and we don't pay enough attention to it and we haven't paid enough um, respect and attention to even those um, departments within universities and that that's come up yeah it's interesting because I I I, I was interested in, you know, as I, I was at, at a, an event with somebody yesterday who's also been away from New Zealand for 40 years or something, and he said how careful he is to ever comment on anything that's going on in New Zealand. But And, of course, I've broken that for the last two years or so doing this with Bernard and Rue and Robert. But the even I read something quite sage, and I must find it actually, about the Matauranga Maori question, and it actually put it in, in the kind of context that I would wish it was put in, which is these are... You know, the, it was about navigation and understanding and being interested in how Polynesian people navigated to New Zealand and elsewhere isn't, as Richard Dawkins would say, a an affront to science. It's just saying there are some interesting aspects in this. You know, it's not... It's not turning turning our back on science, it seems to me. Anyway, I'm sorry, I've dig digressed no, slightly. No, th th this is a really fascinating topic. Um, Catherine and I have spoken about this in more depth in our weekly uh, climate wrap um, video, which will be going up tomorrow. Thank you, Catherine. Hey, Robert, it's really good to see you. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Bernard. Good afternoon, Catherine. Now, do you want to talk about Ukraine first or, or uh, Gaza? Yeah, just when we thought it had degenerated into a stalemate with Russia getting the edge, then there's mm. been a, a spectacular loss of a major Russian warship mm. in the last uh, day or so. The Caesar Kunikov, a major loss for the Russians. And again, they've fallen to drones. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I know we, you're not a military historian as such, but I, I'm sure you sit in the evenings with a glass of whiskey and a pipe in your armchair and and read read Philip O'Brien. Um, these spectaculars. I mean, what what do you think might change? You know, because the spectaculars have been spectacular, and they've given Philip's uh, F I double L I P to. Ukraine and possibly to its Western backers. This comes at a very critical moment when mm. they when they when when, when the uh, Ukraine support from the from the US is still not through Congress, and we've seen the change this week of the of the leadership of Ukraine's military. Yeah, what's happening there? What do you what are you seeing? What are you seeing there, please? I, I think uh, the the reshuffle of the army command is actually coinciding with a new strategy which basically seeks to do what other smaller actors have done when fighting it's a much larger one yeah which is conduct asymmetrical warfare i think they're going to increasingly target russia rather than sort of trying to break through on the front per se i think they are well they are targeting selectively very strategic what's been striking in the last 10 days, a whole series of major oil installations mm. in Russia, quite deep into Russia, some as far as St. Petersburg, have been targeted. And this, of course, will affect the Russian war effort. So they're actually reaching into Russia's backyard and taking the fight to them. And they think this is psychologically an import, uh, and also logistically very important. So in a sense, I, I think... 
it's much more of a hit and run strategy now but of course using drones it, it, yeah it's- but that's but that but that strategy is presumably not being driven yet by the new military commander it's presumably a legacy some of the, you know this mission overnight there may be some crossover we mm. don't know whether Zelensky uh, had private discussions with the new person who's taking over from, yeah. from Solutiony. Apparently, the the move didn't go down very well with Ru- Ukrainian troops because previous uh, army command was very popular. But something that is worth keeping in mind is that I think Zelensky felt it was at a critical juncture in the battle. He needed to freshen things up a bit. And he also, I think, was getting frustrated because I think he wanted this sort of strategy much earlier. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because his replacement, of course, is, is a guy called Alexander Sierski. Yeah, He's talked about, about soldiers being the main asset. And apparently one of the things, apart from the use of the word stalemate that turned um, mm. Zelensky against Zeluzhny, is allegedly there was a dispute between Zeluzhny and um, Zelensky and, and Zeluzhny mm. about the range of attacks across the front line. And supposedly Zeluzhny wanted a, one of those kind of punches through to the south towards Crimea. Right. But, I mean, they're being strangled by the Americans, though, right? I mean, one of the things I wrote today was this, it is extraordinary to think that Trump, effectively not even elected, is is again um, holding the holding Ukraine hostage. Yes, um, although uh, I see that the most recent arms package has got through the Senate, mm. but it's got to get through the House of Representatives. The Democrats have, of course, just flipped another seat in New York with uh, DeSantos standing down and being replaced by a Democrat. So uh, we just have to wait and see on that. It, it, I agree with you. It, it, Mr. Trump is effectively doing Mr. Putin's work for him. I think it's looking quite ominous for Putin. Yeah, but it looked so good, Robert, when he was interviewed by Tucker Carlson. It all looked perfectly fine, and he did have a... Actually, would you like to stop now? We can do a half-hour discussion together about the history of Russia, going back to Oleg Oleg the Marvellous. Please, no! And I can talk about my favourite two rulers from the past, which is Pedro the Mad and Juan of the Cruel, but that's bringing in Spain, which we could do if we had a spare 45 minutes or so. But it was looking, you know, he had a major victory with that Tucker Bollocks, didn't he? I, I think, no, I think cumulatively, these deep strikes within Russia are very dangerous for an authoritarian leader where the, the promise to the people is, don't worry, I'm in charge, I'm ruthless, I move against domestic opponents as well as external opponents, mm-hmm. but the trade-off, you're all safe under me, Yeah, providing you don't step out of line. But and this that, is a way to show that, that they're not safe. And that's probably, I think, Zelensky with his political antenna has worked out this is the way to get to Putin. Mm-hmm. There were signs of this earlier, just at the end of last year, when we were talking about some of those drones which were flying around the Kremlin, which was a bit of a psychological move. Mm. But I, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And the other thing is, there's a lot of new weaponry arriving for Ukraine. When I know the Americans are... A problem, but the Germans are beginning to deliver some pretty handy stuff. Mm. Still not delivering the Taurus uh, missile, which they, uh, but F-16s are imminent. Well, they've been imminent since October. Yeah, I know they have. We keep talking about them, but it does seem like the, uh, there's about 24 from the Netherlands, and I think most of them now are in Ukraine. How interesting. That will be such a such a change. Now, let me, let, could you address one thing that we, because one of the things that I also brought up in my spinoff thing today was about the fatigue, the Western fatigue. And 
in that Tucker Carlson interview, which which uh, the historian Mark Galliotti described as Putin bingo, um, <laughs> and and in more harsh terms, but it raised again this idea of whether this is a proxy war, and. You know, it's nearly two years. It's almost exactly two years. Two years plus. It's uh, minus minus seven days since the invasion. Just tell us a little bit about your perspective as a professor of international affairs on the reasons why this war matters even to us in New Zealand. Well, I I don't think it's a proxy war. I think Putin's motivations were primarily domestic to consolidate his declining authoritarian regime. Uh, it's very convenient to point the finger at NATO. A lot of people say it's all to do with NATO enlargement. But that, of course, assumes that Russia has the right of veto of the security arrangements of a neighbor, which it certainly doesn't. So I do think even if Western support for Ukraine dropped right off, Ukraine would keep seeking to eject mm-hmm. Russian troops from their country. It would take much longer. Uh, they would have to have a lot more homegrown drones and things like that. But I think it would continue. So yeah, that was an extraordinary interview with with Putin. One thing I really liked was, well, not liked, but I was amused by, was Putin's creative approach to history, whereby, uh, or with regard to the the pol- the Poles apparently provoked the Polish provoked Hitler into jointly invading the country with the Soviet Union, which he didn't mention <laughs> because he didn't mention it was the non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany three weeks before what would became a joint invasion of. Poland, yes, and we know that the Russian forces stood outside Warsaw, letting the Germans destroy Warsaw and take o- take over Warsaw. You know, it's just the this that saga. Also, of the, the Soviet leadership were applauding Hitler's advances across continental Europe between 1939 and 41. It was only when uh, Stalin got on the receiving end of Hitler's Wehrmacht that he decided that uh, he was not such a good guy after all. Yeah, speaking of deluded. Uh, and delusions of uh, grandeur and um, history by a potential leader. Donald Trump uh, this week came out and said that uh, Mm. if the European powers uh, don't pay their bills to the United States for being a part of NATO, that he would be quite happy to throw them to the Russian bear and to encourage Russia to invade. What did you make of all that and and, uh, what it does for solidarity in NATO? Well, that comment has provoked Putin to say he wants Biden to win the election now. You heard this in the last 24 hours. Of course, that's a tactical move. He's desperate for Trump. He just can't admit it publicly, particularly after Trump's outrageous comments. There is a deep affiliation between Trump and Putin. It'll be interesting to discover what it is, but uh, you know that's a work for future historians and archivists, I think. But uh, it, it, it was a, a reckless comment, and it was reckless on several fronts. First of all, it showed once again either a willful or inadvertent misunderstanding of NATO. Uh, no money is paid to the US per se. There's an expectation that every NATO member contributes 2% of its GDP. And I think apart from the 11 that meet that expectation, several prominent countries don't, including Germany. Well, actually, the Germans announced today that they've met it. I'm sure they've done it by hook or by crook, but uh, as I was writing my piece of bollocks today, I I had some fresh actual information to add, which is that half of all NATO members now reach the 2%, 
And Germany, I had to rewrite part of it actually, but Germany announced today that it does in fact meet the 2%. I mean, you know, there'll be some yeah. wrinkle in there that they've refloated the Bismarck or something to yeah. to, to do that. But, um, I, but coming back to Berner's uh, question about Trump's comments, I had the privilege and the, and the pleasure of meeting a group of German MPs uh, earlier in the week. And I, I think the effect of his comment is only to harden resolve mm. in Europe. I think there's a recognition in Europe there comes a point where they're going to have to go ahead without the United States. Because at the moment, if you're in the United States, the American electorate face some very tough choices between Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump. Mr. Biden, of course, is in deep trouble now. He had to cancel three campaign events in Michigan, a key state, because of the strength of feeling against Mr. Mm. Biden from mm. Muslim members of Michigan, who've been very strong in the past for supporting Biden. You mean the home of jihad, as the New York Times described it recently, which was insane. Well, New York Times uh, objectivity about these things may not be as great as it should be, but uh, it's certainly, I think, an ominous sign. And also polls showing that 75% of young people in the United States will not be voting Democrat, which mm. was, I don't know how representative that poll was. I don't think it was particularly representative, but it's an indication so, yeah, the American electorate now has a choice between Trump and Biden, it would seem, unless Nikki Haley surprises us or Trump gets ensnared legally mm. uh, in a way that doesn't seem possible at the moment. Robert, um, we've had a statement this afternoon, a joint statement between New Zealand, Canada and Australia making a plea for Israel not to uh, invade southern Gaza and calling for uh, moderation. What did you make of that, just finally? Well, it's welcome. It's overdue. It's good that Canada, Australia, and New Zealand have made this statement. I think it does represent a, a willingness to reach out to the overwhelming views within the, their respective countries and population, because I think public opinion has shifted in that direction. And uh, I, I'm pleased because it's important that three liberal democracies indicate and make it quite clear that enough is enough. There must be an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. And uh, I'm not sure whether this uh, joint statement has been done at the instigation of the United States, because mm. it may be a way of preparing the way to say to Israel, sorry, Mr. Netanyahu, but look, we, we've stuck with you all the way. But even our very close liberal democratic friends, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, have given up on the military solution. So I don't know. But it, I, I, yeah, what's your sense on this? Do you think yeah, it was I, I, I think it would um, be not a moment too soon for the United States to um, tell Israel to back off. And it is interesting that New Zealand, and listening to the tone of the comments from Christopher Luxon on Monday, mm. he clearly New Zealand's feeling uncomfortable being attached to the to the Israeli side of this conflict via the support for US and European attacks strikes on on the mm. Houthis. So, I think the any modicum of uh, support and uh, backing for Netanyahu is very much on shaky ground, and this is the first shake of that shaky ground, and it would be interesting to see oh, the United States. Jesus, um, you're go, a poet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I like the use of the word modicum in there. for a Modicum, I, yeah. I don't think we've heard modicum for a while. Robert, I was really struck thinking about Rafa, mm. that 
you know, it's right on the border of Egypt, the Sinai Desert. You've got, yeah. it's probably a town of 30,000 normally. I don't know, actually, I should check this, but you've got one and a half million people yeah, there. 1.5 million. If you had just been taken before the uh, International um, Court of Justice and that they had found a plausible case that you were at risk of committing genocidal acts, bombing 100 and, uh, one and a half million people on the border of Egypt when people in your government had talked about the idea of expelling Palestinians to Egypt would not be a good look. No, and also particularly since Israel urged many of those people to go to Rafah, described as a safe spot. And now, of course, they are absolutely bewildered. They're, they've gone there and they've got nowhere else to go and they've been told to leave. So, yeah, I mean, the other thing is you may know that South Africa have made a renewed plea to the court to perhaps accelerate the possibility mm. of the court mandating a ceasefire. So that's in the works. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, and of course, we, as we both discussed before, Mr. Netanyahu has a certain interest in keeping the war going. I, I don't know if you picked this up, Bernard and Peter, but early in the week, there were reports on Al Jazeera and I think on the RNZ that uh, Mr. Biden had an extremely heated conversation with Netanyahu. And called him an asshole. Well, he called him unmentionable <laughs> names, apparently. So I think, again, I, I, I think this this was all performative. Whether he really did is another matter. But the White House press corps wanted to get that message out that the president yeah. is losing patience. Yeah. yeah, Robert, thank you very much. Lovely to have you on again. Thank you. Lovely to see you as always. Thank you very much. And it's time now to welcome Dr. C. Rotman onto the show again. Thank you for waiting and thank you very much for, for being on. Um, Kiaruna, thanks so much for letting me on. I just came in right there at the end and I just heard that there's a bipartisan solution that they're trying to sanction South Africa now in the US Congress. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. It's a very interesting problem. And it's, again, well, you know, these some of these things are just totally performative. Yeah. Do Dr. C, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, earlier this week, I came along to the presentation of a report that you've coordinated. We'll put a link uh, to the report in the show notes. Uh, research into hard-to-reach customers living in hidden hardship. This is all about um, energy poverty and the very real problem of power companies being unable to contact um, people who are in trouble and also power companies looking to do things a bit differently than, than the plain old, well, you haven't paid your bill, we're going to cut you off and that's it. Um, can you talk about the background to this report, which you've coordinated with community groups and with uh, Genesis and Mercury, about you know why you've done this research and initially what you found? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Mercury and Genesis, obviously, are two largest retailers. They they realised that there is still um, a lot of hardship, an increase in hardship with their customers from the customer research. And they also saw there is a rise in social retailers like Nomura and Electric, which means that the major utilities are obviously not doing their job getting to some of those communities. And so they really wanted to do something and they didn't want to just wait for the government for MB's energy hardship, you know, um, Mahi to get finished because that was obviously going for years. It's now, you know, it's now been completed and we talked about that last time I was here. But so they wanted to not duplicate any of that other mahi, but instead find out more about who those customer groups are and, you know, what their needs are and work and collaborate with the community to co-design some solutions for them and be really quite proactive about it. And so, um, yeah, that was really what brought it about. And it sent us on this beautiful organic journey that, you know, 
concluded two days ago with this research, but then now there's obviously much more in the works going forward. Yes. So in doing that research, um, you found that there were a lot of people who maybe didn't contact their energy company or the energy company couldn't contact them when the bills started to mount up. Could you talk about some of the things that some of the power companies are doing to try to connect with people and you know how much of an issue this hidden hardship is? Yeah. So this is one of the things that this research has actually shown that this is potentially such a big problem that I've now actually gotten the Users Technology Collaboration Program by the International Energy Agency, who have done the Hard to Reach Energy Users Research with, to fund the next phase of my research for the next three years with this, with Sweden, the United States, mm. Canada, and New Zealand, to actually find out how big the problem is, because we think it's actually rather large. We already found that Hard to Reach Energy Users are much larger than we thought, um, much greater proportion. But those who are hidden, there's like three different reasons why they're potentially hidden. Some of them are hidden because they don't want to be a burden, like um, new refugees or immigrants or isolated elderly. Others are hidden because they've been criminalized or illegalized and they just really don't trust authorities and they don't want to have anything to do you know, with authorities. And others are hidden because we put them in a too hard basket. And like home-based micro-businesses like our own are an example of that or just small businesses in general or you know, um, the homeless, transitory homeless are basically just like, they don't use energy, right? Of course they do. 95% of them, you know, are, are not chronically homeless. So, um, yeah, and there's, you know, other groups of even more stigmatized and marginalized. So we just want to find out how big this problem actually is. But Genesis and Mercury are really doing things with the community. And you met quite a lot of those community groups there, and they're really singing the praises of those power companies and especially the wonderful Helen Tua, who's been doing this mahi in the community for 15 years, really building those connections and those relationships and starting a lot of pilots and doing work with organisations like St. Vinnie's and the Middlemore Children's Hospital and, um, uh, yeah. And what sort of policies have changed? What, what, are things, what are the things that are being done differently after this research in terms of you know, helping those people who are in arrears or not cutting people off. Yeah, yeah. So so when you actually look, so, so there's quite a few new things that came out of also the mahi that MB did with the Energy Hardship Expert Group and the Electricity Price Review and all of that. So all of this kind of goes together and the Electricity Authority has now been mandated to actually, you know, look after small consumers. And a lot of those small consumers sit in that hidden kind of basket. And so the consumer care guidelines are going to become mandatory and, you know, we're hoping that this stuff is going to inspire the consumer care guidelines to maybe be revisited through the lens of energy equity and the just transition and those hidden consumer groups that, you know, nobody knows about because those community voices weren't really listened to, I think, that much when those guidelines were created. So, Dr. C, do, do you think this will be a, a, a precursor or a, or a help when we privatise the water industry in New Zealand? Dare I say the the inevitable privatization under the coalition government? I mean, like, I just want to say, like, we are going to be one of the few countries in the world that does have still a sustainable water supply. So privatizing it is pretty much the craziest thing that we could possibly. Yeah, but we didn't we think that when we privatized the um, hydroelectric power? Well, I, yeah. I think that was a mistake myself, but yep. I mean, Dr. C, I, I keep seeing, like, having lived in the UK for much of the last 30 years or so, I see charter schools, you know, basically a kind of badge of 
uh, interference by the right wing and particularly Christian people who've already can have tax deductible schools if they're you know Catholics and Anglicans. I see electricity privatization, which leads to virtually all the electricity companies in the UK are owned by French or foreign companies or private equity. And then in water, you've just seen decades of dividend extraction and poo. That's what we, you know, what we, well, I could call it shit, actually, going into the water. And I, I can see that being a subtext of what has been agreed this week and this, and this use of urgency to get rid of three waters. Not that three waters wasn't a bit of a cock up in its own right, but... I mean, the, the communication around it particularly, because it should have been hijacked that easily into, you know, becoming a kind of very divisive and racist rhetoric. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I do not want to see privatisation. I mm. was, you know, I was a Green Party candidate when they were trying to privatise and sell off the, you know, stakes in the electricity companies. And, uh, you know, we were fighting very strongly against mm. that, and, you know. Um, yeah. Well, I apologise to... for asking you to get ahead of your own skis there, but... I honestly think that this country is so lucky that it does have those resources and will likely be able to sustain them for quite a bit longer than most other countries with what's happening with the climate collapse. And so, you know, selling them off is just very, very, very extremely short-sighted. We don't often talk about this anymore because it happened, you know, over a dec decade ago, the decision to sell down those 49% stakes in mm. Mercury Genesis, or what was then Mighty River, became Mercury Genesis and Meridian. And um, I think it's one of those original sins, along with the sale of contact um, to start with. It's going to be hard to pull it back. But uh, keeping the heat and the spotlight on um, the very real effects of uh, um, power price inflation and the way that, you know, uh, profit-driven companies uh, can sometimes cause an awful lot of grief. Um, just, just one thing, uh, Dr. C, I'm curious about, you know, we're entering into an era where electricity networks have the potential to become a lot more local and a lot more locally controlled, often by the very users of the electricity on that building. Previously, you know, you had to build a big dam that you had to, needed a lot of capital, it needed a lot of infrastructure to distribute it. Now you can put panels on your roof, you can put panels on your neighbor's roof. And I just wonder, is there a potential here with the rollout of cheap solar, batteries, community networks, you know, virtual power traders to actually start to break the grip of these, you know, big gen tailors and the big distributors in and, and give some people some actual power to own their and generate their own electricity. Yeah, it's it's yes. I mean on the one hand I do want to just say that it is the mandate of the power companies to sell power and their main shareholder is still the crown. And so like, you know, you can't really blame them for doing what is actually the the mandate. They would it would be illegal for them not to try and, you know, make money out of selling power. However, they are very much, you know, cognizant of the fact that they do need to look after the most vulnerable customers. And of course there's an equity issue with the richest people being able to afford the EVs and the PVs and the you know, and they are getting the subsidies and that is not right. And that is one of those things that we need to look at when we want to have a just and equitable tr transition that we signed up to, all of us in the world under COP28. You know, like how we can actually do that when so many energy users are completely hidden and literally sometimes off the grid or self-disconnecting because they can't afford the power, you know. And so I'm hoping that 
things like this research put them in the center of some of those decisions and bringing the community voice and those connections and building those relationships and that trust. The biggest issue is that the trust has been broken for so long. And, you know, so this Mahi is kind of working on, you know, the four themes that we found and that we really heard loud from the community and that we really hope the rest of the electricity industry is also, you know, buying into and starting to build is we need to rebuild trust. We need to listen to the community voice because they know what's best for their whānau, especially those who are hidden and underserved. The industry needs to know when to stay in its lane and not do everything with top-down, siloed, you know, decision-making and solutions without understanding the real problem of the lived experience. And then the last one, of course, is um, that we need to be better with more mana-enhancing practices, that we actually empower the community with the things like you just say. You know, that is one of the examples, but there is others that the industry can do just to, like, help improve energy literacy in communities and make billing easier and easier understood. And we're talking about all these things like demand flow. And transferring suppliers, transferring between one supplier, looking at, you know, all of that easier. Because if you're in debt, you know, like you may not be able to transfer between suppliers and you're locked in and all of that stuff is, you know, like a real problem to those, to those consumers. And so I'm really hoping that this is a good springboard for the rest of the industry to also go and follow the example of those two retailers and reduce disconnections for those customers. Dr. C, thank you very much for coming on to the Hoon again, and thank you for producing this report, which I'll put a link to in the the show notes. Lovely to see you, and I look forward to talking again at some point about some of these issues. Now, just to finish the show, um, well, well, Bernard, no, but can we? Can I ask you a question, actually? Because you know, we've we've there's there's been a tiny bit of digression in the show. Is the government, in your view, overusing urgency? in order to get its 100-day thing going? Absolutely. Um, Some major changes have happened to the RMA, to Three Waters, and now uh, yesterday, the forcing through of urgency, a a major change to indexation for benefits, which will have the effect, according to MSD, of putting an extra at least 7,000 people, kids into poverty, and potentially up to 13,000 and which is not going to generate the revenues that uh, National uh, had hoped for to help pay for its tax cuts. This was rammed through under urgency. It's true mm-hmm. they needed to get it through by April 1 for their own needs. Yeah. But this means this is a major change in policy which didn't receive the scrutiny that Parliament's there to mm. provide. And for the last two and a half months, the government's been slamming things through without regulatory impact statements, um, without proper select committee hearings, and it just makes a mockery of the opposition's own complaints about Labor's use of urgency in previous uh, parliaments. So uh, it's it's a it's a pretty frustrating and depressing time to for those people who. Well, let's let's deal with that maybe next week, and Mm. I we should also have Max Rashbrook. Uh, oh, absolutely. To, yeah. to discuss the lobby question. So do you want the skateboarding dog story? Yes, please. Yes. So, you know, I love those Florida man stories, which are usually, you know, Florida man eaten by his own alligator or, <laughs> you know, Florida man votes his alligator into power or something. Um, but today's one is about a Texas man who had a 250 pound, that's about 100 kilo warthog which decided to kill him one day. He had a pet warthog. And apparently, warthogs have become quite big pets, or like very large pets, both in, big, partly because of that ridiculous uh, film and the one that says Akuna Matata. Ah, right, uh, Oh, yeah. The Lion King. The Lion King. I'm sorry, that's the film. And so this chap, Austin Riley, was walking around his farm in Texas with, the, with his 
250-pound warthog when it, as it says, it used its razor-sharp seven-inch tusks to stab him at least 15 times. The attack shredded his lower body and filled his boots with blood and then left gaping holes in his torso and neck. I love these kind of stories. And had any other animal been responsible, Austin would have considered a random attack. But this was a pet he trusted more than any other, his lovable warthog, Waylon. For years, that animal trusted me every day, and I trusted him, Austin said. I put blood, sweat, and tears into his life, and he decided to kill me. And then, of course, what happened was Waylon got killed, and Austin survived. And Austin says of his long-lost warthog, I don't think it was Waylon who attacked me. I was attacked by a warthog. Uh, no, it wasn't Waylon. No, it was a schizophrenic um, warthog. Yeah. Hakuna Matata is all Hakuna, Mata- Hakuna <laughs> Matata. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then life has a, it's all part of the circle of life. Yes. Nature is healing. Nature yeah, is healing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, also, we plant the seeds. Nature grows the seeds. Yes, yes, exactly. No, no, that's good. Peter, lovely to have you on. It's been a, a great show again and um, looking forward to it again next week. Kakite ano, everyone. Um, we'll see you all again. Kakite ano. Thank you very much, everybody. Cheers. Bye bye.